0: Welcome back to the Color of Poverty, Color of Change podcast miniseries. This is episode three. My name is Jesse Renata. In conversations with guests, this miniseries engages with the realities of racism faced by peoples of color and Indigenous communities on this land now called Canada, particularly in the context of Ontario, and with local anti racism action being undertaken by various groups and individuals across the province. We hope this mini-series is able to serve as a tool to provide listeners with insights into ongoing anti-racist work in the province while expanding ongoing conversations on racism, poverty, and systemic inequities in Ontario. In producing this podcast, we acknowledge that Color Poverty, Color of Change's ongoing work is taking place within a settler colonial context on the traditional Indigenous territories of the Huron-Wendat, Haudenosaunee and most recently, the territory of the Mississaugas of the Credit River. This territory is part of the Dish With One Spoon Wampum Belt Covenant, an agreement between the Anishinaabeg and Allied Nations and Haudenosaunee Confederacy to peacefully share and care for the resources around the Great Lakes. Those of us who are settlers and settlers of color are committed to learning and unlearning about our community's complicity and ongoing settler colonialism, while recognizing our work to advance social justice must center Indigenous communities and their diverse lived experiences across this land now commonly called Canada. Today, we're in Windsor, on the traditional territory of the Three Fires Confederacy of First Nations, which includes the Ojibwa, the Odawa, and the Potawatomi. We're focusing our conversation on the ongoing tensions between the Watsuitan and Canadian government, as well as solidarity, what that has looked like, and what comes next. Okay, let's get into it. A quick introduction from our guest today.
1: Scano uh, uh, um, so greetings of peace. Um, I told you my real name is Gowankeuse, and it means she's visiting. And I'm Mohawk Bear Clan from Six Nations Grand River Territory, which is part of the bigger uh, Haudenosaunee Confederacy. And my um, my GST name is Beverly Jacobs.
2: And Michael Kerr, I help work as coordinator for Color of Poverty, Color of Change.
0: Okay, so looking at the percentages of people living in poverty across major cities in Ontario, Windsor ranks the highest according to the 2016 census, a distinction that carries true also when looking at the numbers for peoples of color living in poverty. So there is definitely a connection between race and poverty. However, these statistics often don't include Indigenous communities, and when they do, they often fail to capture the realities of poverty that Indigenous communities face across this land. What are some of those realities, and how do you think they differ for Indigenous communities versus peoples of color?
1: Well, I think, I think the issue of, of sovereignty and self-determination are related to Indigenous people participating in the census, um, because Indigenous peoples... Um, a lot of times, don't participate. Um, anytime any Canadian official comes to their doorstep and asks for um, that kind of information, and and I know um, my family would do the same and say, "Well, we're, we aren't a part of Canada. We're not. We're a sovereign people. If if you want to know our census, then you talk to our traditional government and." and ask them whether they want to give out that information. Um, and so um, so when it does come to the statistics that are taken, um, they don't take into consideration that aspect. So the numbers, I think, are skewed, right? They're not getting the correct information. Um, and I think... Uh, so that that's like uh, just um just a statistical information um, but I think with the numbers um when it doesn't take into consideration and it's still high um, I think that's an important um, important conversation and the similarities that we have as people of color in living in poverty and surviving and survival more survival mode um, on a daily basis i think is is really uh, something that has to be taken into consideration and the similarities that we have as indigenous peoples and peoples of color
2: certainly from the work over the past 12 plus years of color of poverty color of change one of the right from the outset we had wanted to do this work in the best way possible. And part of the approach that we adopted from, from day one was the the absolute necessity to, to build an ever stronger bridge and relationship between peoples of color and, and indigenous peoples um, to help to be best under, bring forward under, a shared understanding, mm-hmm. um, and a shared understanding that spoke to both sets of, of lived experiences so that both sets of diverse communities could in some way be best supportive and in allyship with the other, other set of diverse communities. And, and the starting point for us in terms of understanding poverty, recognized um, <clears throat> the, the, the ways in which that reality is very much shared and, and what, what has driven that agenda is experiences of shared racialized exclusion and marginalization but also creating space and opportunity for us to build understanding across peoples of color of the, also the very unique and different set of drivers that impact indigenous peoples with regard to issues of sovereignty, self-determination, treaty, where, where treaty exists, uh, title, and so on, and helping communities of color best understand that set of realities so that 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 kind of understanding could help us be um, the strongest ally set of allies possible um, in supporting the work, Indigenous-led work, of rebuilding the nation-to-nation relationship.
0: And these realities Indigenous communities continue to face are in many ways an extension of Canada's colonial origins. Could you provide some insight into the roots of the current relationship between First Nations and Canada, perhaps speaking a little bit about what treaties are and how treaties are relevant to the situation in Wet'suwet'en?
1: Just even to go back before colonization, there were there were treaties that were made amongst indigenous nations, um, peace treaties, um, that were long established here on Turtle Island before the colonizers ever stepped foot. We had wampum, wampum belts and wampum treaties that were what I call international treaties amongst indigenous nations before the colonizers ever stepped foot. That's why we knew about how to have political uh, relations with with the colonizers, and so where I come from as as a Haudenosaunee, um, and the first one of the first um, peace and friendship treaties being the Gaswenta, the the Two Row Wampum Belt, and uh, its first uh, relationship with um, with the Dutch and with the French and the British and a Swedish and the United States, um, so I, I had always said I had always not known actually about about Swedish until I did my PhD, and and when I started looking at the two row wampum and and it was it was documented that it was made with the Sweden as well, so the 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 whole purpose in that agreement was was to. Uh, have nation-to-nation relationships, sovereign relationships, and knowing that we were sharing the land, sharing sharing the um, well, Guswenta. The literal translation is "river of life," so that we would we would live along this river of life without interfering in each other's ways of life and ways of life in the language that's our. That's our laws, our culture, our tradition, and, and the same with, the, with our treaty partner. And one of the major principles of, of that relationship is about peace and trust and, and friendship. And I think our, our people have never forgotten about that relationship, but the colonizers haven't. And that's what we're dealing with today is the violation not only of, of that treaty, but any other treaty relationships that were done across the country from the early 1800s until the um, early 1900s. And as they were you know, colonizing across the country um, and creating these treaty relationships, I th- also think that uh, descendants of the colonizers have forgotten about being a treaty partner and that they are descendants of treaty, that everybody's a descendant of the treaty. There isn't just one-sided, it's not just a one-sided agreement. But our people have never forgotten. So as you're moving across the west, um, the treaty relationship stopped in British Columbia. There's, There's a couple that, in the north is Treaty 8, and I think that Douglas Treaties in Vancouver Island in BC but where the Wet'suwet'en Nation and the Gitsan and other nations uh, the Nishka Musqueam like all along the BC coast um, never had treaties with with Canada so they're unceded territory and that's how even in, in the eastern part of Canada there's a lot of unceded territory that was never part of treaty so that means it's still owned by by indigenous nations and but what has interfered in that uh identity of traditional lands and territories is colonial law right the doctrine of discovery and how law has been used to um identify that as the, you know, their establishment of title and crown title. So all of a sudden the British North America Act of 1867 is established and says we have control over Indians and lands reserved for Indians. That was a unilateral piece of legislation. Indigenous people didn't agree to that, didn't consent to that law, that legislation and they just totally erased any treaty relationship and um, <clears throat> didn't establish that nation-to-nation relationship. So all of a sudden, indigenous people became wards of the crown and lands and territories that belong to indigenous nations became crown land. So a lot of people don't know that history. And so when we hear all of the things that are happening um, on indigenous land and territory where um, governments, indigenous governments, are taking their power back and, uh, and their land back, it causes this upheaval with, with our treaty partners who haven't learned their own history, um, haven't learned their own relationship and privilege to the land that they're living on, which is indigenous land. So, also, what ha- has happened in law is that after, um, you know, from the change to the BNA Act to the Constitution Act in 1982, uh, all of a sudden we're, our rights, Aboriginal and treaty rights, are entrenched in the Constitution. But they're, they entrenched them without Indigenous consultation. Or if there was consultation, it wasn't with the right treaty partners. Cause They didn't have the traditional governments uh, as part of that conversation. And I know that traditional governments did oppose um, Section 35 because all of a sudden the government um, could define what they are and they don't have a right to. But they left it to the courts to define it. So that's when we started in 1990 with the Sparrow decision that defined... Aboriginal rights, and from that time, from 1990 to, to today, um, there's a whole complex legal process to define a right um, to have to prove that you're Aboriginal, that you have to prove you're pre-colonial, you know, all of the proof and the onus on indigenous people to prove who they are and to prove their right is ridiculous. And so then we get to the Dalgamuk decision, and that was, you know, one of the first decisions that people thought was uh, to be celebrated because it recognized Wet'suwet'en and Gitsan laws as being traditional law and that they had title to their lands and territories. That
2: was 97, wasn't it? 97,
1: yeah. So when that decision was made from the Supreme Court of Canada, that's supposed to be supreme law, right? That's that's the law. So to have a pipeline to go through the territory and not to consult with the, treat- the treaty partner, not treaty partner, they were the owners of the land because there was no treaty there. So that's where the problem, like the underlying problem, the underlying issues is with colonial law. It has nothing to do with the way that it gets twisted around as being, um, I don't know what the word is, the word that they're using to, maybe terrorist is is one that I've read. Our um, people who are are standing up according to their own law to be land protectors, right? Just all the negative terminology and for the public to, to hear, marginalized and criminalized. Yeah. yeah, and just those that language when when Canadian society isn't educated in the first place about the real history, you know, and how the governments and the media um portray it in a whole different light.
0: And that's something um I wanted to ask you a little bit more about. Um you did reference this a little bit, but um in 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 the coverage by media, there's been a lot of reference to band councils versus the hereditary chiefs. Why are we hearing so much about this binary?
1: So one of the colonial laws that was created after the BNA Act was the Indian act so so under the BNA Act, right, you have had federal and provincial powers. So under federal powers was the Indian Act, so it's a federal piece of legislation. but even before even before the BNA Act, there was already legislation, there was already um, racist Uh, law. One of them called the Gradual Civilization Act. And what it established was to define an Indian. Even Indian isn't the right word. Indian is uh, defined by the male head of the household. So it was a patriarchal, Victorian, um, racist, sexist piece of legislation. And the other was enfranchisement. So an Indian, male Indian, who went to war or became educated, they say became a a clergy, they would lose their status as an Indian, right? So they called that enfranchisement or somebody could voluntarily um, enfranchise, which meant that they would get paid 25 bucks for not wanting to be an Indian anymore. And because also it was um, at that time was so, patriarchal, that the definition of an, of an Indian was a man, a woman who was married to that man and a child of him, right? So it defined according to the male head of the household, which went totally against, um, I would say, most most, but not all um, indigenous governments, indigenous. Um, so for me, as Haudenosaunee, we're matriarchal. Wutsuwet'en are matriarchal. So we follow our our women, right? the matrilineal following our mothers and the female line. So when the Indian act came in, it followed this previous legislation in defining who what male <coughs> an Indian was according to a man um but it also established because we had traditional governments, it established uh what I call a a foreign elective type governance system, right? So they bring in men at that time who were elected as leadership in the community. And a lot of times it was just a decision that was made by the few people who were around the table. In my community at Six Nations, it was enforced at gunpoint by the RCMP um, to enforce an elective type system in the community because we already had a traditional government that was, that was already in place. So it caused a lot of, It causes a lot of internal uh, complex problems because the traditional government are, are usually the decision makers. And then you bring in this foreign elective type system that's based on colonial principles. And it also has no power because the Minister of Indian Affairs, who governs the Indian Act, uh, has the final say on anything that's, that's done in the community. So it's still controlled by the Department of Indian Affairs. The resources that are, that are established for Indian Act governments are controlled by the Department of Indian Affairs, by the Canadian government. I always say Indian Affairs, it doesn't matter what name they change it to. So now it's, I don't know what it is. Indigenous Affairs, um, Indigenous Services, yeah, Services or something. And Crown
2: Indigenous Relations. And, it's all the same. It's, yeah, it's yeah.
1: Indian Affairs. Yeah. It's still the same. At one time, actually, it was we were governed under uh, minds and resources. Yeah. Um, so we were a resource for them.
2: Somewhat indicative.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and in terms of uh, hereditary chiefs, and how does that relate
1: to So that? that's the traditional government. The Wet'suwet'en have male, I think they have male and female hereditary chiefs. Where I'm from, we have, uh, as Haudenosaunee, we have male leaders, but we have clan mothers. Um, and Wet'suwet'en, they, they're called the matriarchs. Um, so that's the similarities between us. And so I think part of the difficulty as well is, is how, you know, colonial systems have, have been in power for such a long time. And the way that people think about how government is supposed to be run, like democracy is supposed to be run, that you vote somebody in. You're voting somebody in into positions of, of leadership. Um, but that's not how our systems were, were governed. They were based on, they were actually based on, leadership was chosen by characteristics of being a good leader, of being a good man, um, and that they they thought um, and always thought about the best interests of, of everybody in their community. The elective system is, I think in some communities are maybe two years, three-year positions. And it isn't the majority of the people in the community who vote. In my community, I think at one time it was like 5% of the, pe- Five. Of the community that vote. That's not the majority of the people who are making decisions in the community. Um, I'm not sure how it's run out out in Wet'suwet'en territory. Um They're all, they are different, but similar because they're still all, all um, established the same way according to the Indian Act.
0: Yeah, and it definitely raises questions around Indigenous sovereignty and and self-governance, right? And thinking more about that. I think something we heard a lot from Justin Trudeau's federal election campaign for 2015 was a reference to nation-to-nation relationship building. Fast forward to today, and we're still hearing this term come up a lot. What does this term mean to First Nations across this land? What does it mean to you?
1: Coming from Trudeau?
0: Coming from an Indigenous perspective.
1: <laughs> from an Indigenous perspective, it's it comes down to that original treaty relationship, nation-to-nation uh, sovereign to sovereign, um, we should be able to control our own affairs according to, according to our own leadership and according to the people. And I think that's where the difference is, is that everyone has a voice in our traditional system. It is, a, it is supposed to be. Because we haven't been able to truly follow our own traditional governance systems. That colonial system has really impacted our people a lot because it's controlled by money, because the Indian Act system itself is controlled by the Department of Indian Affairs. I mean, it, it, that's, that's inevitable. You need resources in the community to govern a community. So when you rely on that for hundreds of years, it causes a lot of internal struggles. But that nation to nation relationship is supposed to be Indigenous governments partnering with Canadian government. So you have, you have the Canadian government and its law called the Indian Act. It controls all of the Indian Act governments. There's 600 and something Indian Act governments. So this whole bureaucracy across Canada I think there's like $9 billion within the department. Half of that is just the administration of the Department of Indian Affairs. So then the rest of that money has to flow through to 600 plus First Nations, Indian Act communities, right? That also established reserve reservations. Right, so these boundaries of reserve land that are in some places in treaty territory. So they're little pockets compared to the treaty, right? So, so that also created the segregation, putting Indians in cages, and there was so much control over time from what they called Indian agents, originally. Now they're Indian Act chiefs.
2: That's one thing that in our own ongoing effort to build read deeper, broader shared understanding across communities of color of, of these histories mm-hmm. that are so critical to understanding today in the moment and even more importantly going forward from from this time. Um, and recognizing some of that history and how the, the, the ghettoization, the, the fragmentation of community, the, the imposition of structures of governance um, to, in order to displace and fragment community. Um, the fact that that system of, of reserve-based uh, territory and the and the Indian agents, the past laws all, and all of that having informed apartheid South Africa and and so many Canadians, old and new, have no understanding of that kind of history and legacy. But that really is so critical and necessary to understand Mm -hmm. where we are now in the present moment in order to be able to go forward in a good way together.
1: So that history has never been taught in the education system. So that is also part of the problem that, you know, everyday Canadians right going through the educational system over generations are learning colonial history they're learning history through the eyes of the the colonizers so that seems to give them some sort of like something that they believe is the truth and and so when you when you think that you're being taught this history, it's not the truth, <laughs> because they're not learning about the true history of the relationship of Indigenous people. We're the, we, we've we been here since time immemorial, a long time before Canadian law and U.S. law ever came to these lands.
0: Absolutely, and from a personal perspective, I was born and raised on Coast Salish territories, also called Vancouver, and Um, I think typically when we think about maybe awareness around um, Indigenous histories, British Columbia seems to be kind of like a more, um, seems like there's a lot more awareness around issues and and understanding of that history. But also for myself, like going through the public education system, I learned very little about, especially, um, you know, uh, the Pacific Northwest and those particular unique contexts, right? And how that differs um, in terms of treaty and, and those histories as well. It wasn't until... Uh, post-secondary until I actually learned in depth uh, of treaty and and um, how that is different in in the context of British Columbia.
1: So you didn't know that you're going to school on Musqueam territory.
0: Not until I got to UBC. <laughs> 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 and that's the other interesting thing, right? Is like I think um, there's a, there's a lot of Indigenous art and 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 public public art and things like and displays. Absolutely. And so it kind of paints a different type of narrative almost for folks growing up in that context. It really glosses over.
1: It's for show.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. There's
1: no history that those, those totem poles are thousands of years old. Mm
0: hmm. Peaceful protests and railroad blockades have gone up in support of the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs across the country and have been met with police action and arrests in recent days. What do you think solidarity, particularly between Indigenous communities and settler communities of color, looks like?
1: That's what it looks like. It looks like people standing up and supporting and, and being visible, um, taking action. Every time I saw... Um, an action popping up, I was just like celebrating. And the way I also describe it is like indigenous peoples, we've been in a violent relationship with Canada for centuries. And when you're in a violent relationship, you know, you become, you know, with the layers and layers of genocidal policies, right? Residential school, child welfare system, the jails, um, All the systems that that the colonial system has set up and our people are like the highest population and everything. Um, And so when, when you become a victim, it takes a long time to get your voice back, to get your power back, and to say, that's enough. And I think Idle No More started that saying that's enough and people standing up and the allies standing up with us. And that's what I believe is. And what I, what I see, this isn't going to end until, until Canada accepts its abusive behaviors, until it accepts that it needs to do something to heal. More needs to happen.
0: Mm-hmm. And this particular threat of the coastal gas link project is is a, is really a flashpoint in terms of bringing a lot of these issues out in the open and, and having to confront them head on. So, what does this solidarity between settler communities of color and indigenous communities what can this look like beyond this particular threat?
1: It's it's more awareness. It's more uh, relationships, building healthy relationships, acknowledging settler. Indigenous relations. I always co- come right back to guswenta because it has three basic principles of a healthy relationship: peace, trust, and friendship. It's like really simple yet powerful concepts, right? Of we have that kind of relationship. We live on. We live on the same earth, and Indigenous people have taken on, have always, and have never forgotten their roles and responsibilities to protect her and to um, to give thanks for her and everything that comes with her and on her. Um, and I think, and that's just what I see happening now, is that more and more people are becoming educated and establishing those kinds of healthy relationships. Um, and that more education has to be done. Like, I, I really believe that the more that people are aware um, of what's happening, of what these kinds like um, the LNG and CGL and all of those uh, resource developments are doing to, um, to our mother. And we're all, doesn't matter really what color we are, we're all human. We're all responsible for taking care of her if we want to survive here we've had so many prophecies of what's coming and this we're right in it and in our prophecies they say that we have to make a decision in this time and if we if we if we continue to stand up and protect because that's what this is all about as well it's it's more than just the right to land with you know the Dalgamuk decision and title to land and it's about our people protecting land and resources for future generations, for our children and grandchildren to, to live here. And, you know, according to our prophecies, if we continue on the road of um, continuing to rape Mother Earth, then she's going to decide. <laughs> she's going to decide whether we like it or not. Right? She can survive without us and our, all of our creation stories start with her first, and all of creation, that's why we as, in our, in our laws, talk about, you know, as human beings, we have to rely on all of them to survive as a people. So that's the bigger picture.
2: The, wor- the words that come before all mm-hmm. else, yeah.
1: Yeah, and our relationship to everything.
0: Beyond public displays and actions of solidarity, what does effective community building look like in your view to develop shared understandings among indigenous communities and settler communities of color of how racism expresses itself differently as well as similarly
1: yeah when you when you add in the uh, the racism and the ignorant people who have no clue what they're talking about um that that's where I see that. Continued allyship because we're dealing with the same. We're dealing with the same people, <laughs> and I've I've always said that it's all about education and that it's learned behavior. It is learned behavior, and it can also be unlearned. It's the same thing as you know the violence against women, right? That that it's a learned behavior and it can be unlearned through education and through people willing to change and willing to be open and willing to learn, willing to understand. I feel like the more and more of of us as people of color and Indigenous people continue to, and allies, because there are allies who do understand, (laughs) who do understand this whole relationship and education that hopefully one day that in future generations that they'll it won't be as bad as it is now, because I do see that also in the younger generations. That, and I think that's what I see coming with the with the um, standing up, because it isn't just Indigenous people; it's young people who are standing up. It is people of color who are standing up.
2: Thinking about that, the in having attended some of the like the the rallies, the marches, the vigils in Toronto and in area last several days weeks Mm -hmm. you really do see that generational shift in terms of the the age demographic of the folks that are out being willing to come out and and represent and the ethno-racial demographic going back not too many years you you know you always get the same usual suspect Mm what white white sort of socialists leaning crew but that that's changing as you say the more people are coming to learn, coming to understand, coming to appreciate. And I think that's where putting it in settler speak, the notions of sustainability, there, there's so much that we all need learn, can learn from Indigenous ways of knowing and being and living, and living lightly on the land, and which is so critical for life mm-hmm. going forward. So I think, and then as Starting with "Idle No More," or even going back earlier than that, mm-hmm. but from then present to the to the present, so I, I think there is very much a general a generational shift a real a real moment we're in now that can take, can in some ways it's quite inspiring and very powerful. It isn't to say there's a hell of a hell of a long way to go a long road, but I think I think the steps are being taken. I think so too. Yeah,
1: I think this shift. There is a shift that's happening. I keep here and teaching here. You know, law students who are coming for their law degrees—they already either have one degree or even maybe two before they get here. And so, I've been teaching Indigenous legal orders. And you know, they—I ask. That's the very first question I ask: Is how much do you know about Indigenous people? Mm-hmm. And most of them say, well, maybe in high school. Maybe I've taken a course in my undergrad. Um, and then once we get into the detail of Indigenous legal orders, they're saying, I had, I had no idea. And a lot of them saying, um, why did it take you know, two degrees? Or why did it take a whole degree that I didn't even know any of this? And many of them. Some of them are, you know, they, some of them get upset because they think they, because in indigenous legal orders we also ask them to look at themselves and where they come from and their settler privilege, um, their parents, their grandparents, where they come from. That's the first question we ask is who are your ancestors? And um, because, because that's part of our law as Indigenous law is, is giving thanks to our ancestors. That, that, that's where our knowledge also comes from. Some appreciate it. Some appreciate the, uh, that kind of thinking. Some don't. I don't think we're going to get 100%. But I always say, even if it's just one who understands that it's a ripple effect. Because they say, you know, we go home and we talk to our families and we talk to our friends and, and they say that they tell what they're, you know, talk about what they're learning and um, asking why they didn't learn it before.
0: Do you have any parting words of hope and resistance?
1: I mean, that's part of, um, that's why I'm tired. You know, the resistance and feeling of uh, being in war, like we we're at war. Just that feeling that of um, the initial, you know, being in Tainanega and being, watching again the police state using its colonial law to enforce their violence. You know, it's happened in Oka. It's happened b- way before that, but just in my lifetime, how much we have to see. and And it's not just, and it's not even just those, instances at what's happened on a daily basis with over-representation of our people in prison and over-representation of of our kids in the child welfare system and 60s scoop and missing and murdered Indigenous women and you know just that whole colonial violence and keeping maintaining the hope and resistance it's just like sometimes it's just so harsh And I remember you know in doing the work I missing and murder indigenous women and you know people always ask how do you how do you do it how do you keep going and I think it's also because of our our spirituality and connection to our land that's where that's where our hope comes from that's where everything the source <laughs> right we this is where we come from We we can't go anywhere else. This is, you know.
2: Going back to our earlier thoughts around having inspiration and having hope going forward, I think that's the real, I think the key resource or pool that we can draw from, the the fact that Indigenous peoples of these lands and territories have that rootedness in the soil, in the land, and have that that strength that they can then draw from that, then that can be shared out with peoples of colour. Yeah. In, in having a shared experience of racialization, color-coded inequality, all, all, all the different dimensions of what that, that, how that manifests, but able to then, in that kind of vicarious kind of fashion, being able also to tap into that strength moving forward together.
0: Thank you to our guests, Beverly Jacobs and Michael Kerr, and to our listeners. Keep an eye out for upcoming episodes as we continue our conversation with guests in different cities across Ontario. This podcast is made possible by funding through the Department of Canadian Heritage. For more information, check us out online at colourofpoverty.ca and by using hashtag racistedge. That's R-A-C-E-S-E-D-J. Until next time, I'm Jesse Renata. Thanks for listening.